fellowship, take a moment to greet um, friends in Christ near you, to give the peace of Christ one to another. And uh, we're going to share a scripture with the kids before they go down to their mission class today. So just a greeting together. We love you all. Such a blessing to see you. <laughs> hey, good morning, good morning Joyce. Good to see you. <laughs> so appreciate you so much. Oh, Amen. Thank, thank you. Would you now please open open Bibles as you come back to your seat? We'll again read together so we're in unison from copies of the scripture that are in the pews together. And we so so appreciate the enriching grace that God sends us through the encouragement of one another. Today, on, on page 1344 in, uh, in the Bibles that are in the pews, we want to read a section from Ephesians chapter 3. This is, um, this is a time in which, for many reasons, all of us benefit from what I call a prayer starter. The section I want to show you on page 1344 in these Bibles is Ephesians chapter 3, and it's beginning with verse 12. The prayer part begins two verses later. I want to read verse 12 through 21 aloud together in unison. This is a prayer starter of epic proportion because in this section of Scripture, you literally can take any season in your life, and today, as we pray for our very, very troubled country, that we pray this for millions upon millions that we don't even know. We pray it for our nation, and we pray it for the troubled spots of the world. But as we do so, we pray it because, again, God places his redeemed people as salt in the earth, and the salt like it would be even in a simple application in our food, is sprinkled into the food that we eat, and it's imperceptible to the eye, and yet it savors or influences the food. So when Jesus used that wonderful illustration, you are the salt of the earth. Anybody got some salt in you today? Wave at me, would you please? All right, some salty people. And uh, you're the light of the world. He's speaking of of intangible things that are also in not, not easy to perceive, but it's real. And this passage is one of the ways in prayer that we can be salt in a troubled world, that we can be light, and that is simply 
simply to pray. But the trouble is, so often people say, how do I pray? How do I even pray about such tragedies? How, how, where do I begin? And this is why God gives us really wonderful prayer starters. And as you read it, we're going to read it together aloud. And I want to invite you to take it with you later today and read it again before the sun goes down tonight. Read it aloud somewhere else at home or wherever you may be. And uh, let the words of this prayer become part of a wonderful adventure in your life where when you hit that wall and you think, I don't even know what to pray. I don't know where to start. Start at Ephesians 3, 14. But we're going to start at verse 12 first. So would you stand and read aloud with me? Let's stand just one more time so we're reading the word of God together uh, as we stand. Ephesians 3, 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Ephesians 3, 13 now. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When he puts those last phrases forever and ever, it's kind of like, why do you have to say forever and ever? I think it's got to remind us this fits in every situation in life. Use it for the glory of God. Put a person's name. Start back in verse 14 and put a person's name in every phrase. I pray. Let me pick a name out of nowhere here. Uh, Sally. I pray for Sally that the Father would grant Sally, according to the riches of his grace, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in her inner being. That Christ may dwell in Sally's heart by faith. You can begin to apply it. Pray for your church home. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for this church? And pray, put our names, put your church in this prayer. Put your country in this prayer. And you may say, well, I'm praying for a lot of people that don't believe in God. That's okay. The Holy Spirit can use it powerfully. It may, be the, it may actually be the, the, the fuel, uh, the, the flame that ignites uh, a, a stirring of evangelism that where the Holy Spirit brings the word of God to somebody that hasn't heard. Above all, though, it is a way to realize in our lives the Holy Spirit's immediate, powerful, dynamic working in our lives. And we can't forget this. Everyone in this sanctuary, everyone hearing my voice, all of us together are qualified to pray. No special requirements are needed. 
You don't have to take a seminar to learn to pray. You don't have to take some course to learn to pray. Be okay to do that, but you can pray because the Holy Spirit is in you. How many of you would pray this prayer today before the sun goes down for some people in your life and and for people that are on your heart? Would you do it? Would you pray the prayer today? Amen. Well, we're going to have our mission time for the kids uh, for their mission Sunday, and uh, it's a combined class today down in the... uh, social hall and so we're so glad uh, that we can have this time for all of them thank you you may be seated thank you oh oh it's it's just great praise god well today um we do want to give honor where honor is due so memorial day of 2022 brings us again to another time to remember a scripture a a principle of god and Romans 12, give honor to whom honor is due. We are, we're always aware, just as I just said about prayer, we're always aware of our, in, our inability, our, uh, basic, uh, our basic incapacity to do justice to the people who serve our country bravely and boldly, both in the present tense and then, of course, the people we think about, and many of us do, and I always think every time I say this, I, I always, my father-in-law comes to my brain First, uh, Becky's father, who is so typical of the people in his generation that um, he lived to be about 93, but um, in, the, in her growing up years, uh, Jack was like lots, of, lots of, of people who came out of World War II that served uh, in, in harm's way, in his case, 35 bombing missions over, over Japan as a, as a navigator, a, a bombardier navigator in the Air Force, and like many, even like some of like former President Bush, uh, 41, and others, he didn't talk about his experiences. Uh, Becky grew up with um, her siblings. Dad didn't talk about the war. It wasn't, it wasn't a topic of conversation uh, to speak of. When our son was in, um, was it elementary school or was it middle school? When our second son had a, a project, I think it was middle school, for um, interviewing a um, veteran, uh, he got his grandfather to say, would you sit and let me interview you? And he, Joel, Joel was really already getting into cameras at that point, so he was doing it on video. And he got my father-in-law talking about his experiences in the war and uh, what he did and how he served. And it was almost like something in him unlocked. And later we could get, more, we could get that conversation going more later. And then he and Becky's mother traveled many years um, uh, to um, reunions of his some of his squadrons that gave them a reason to go to places like Idaho and Arizona and Colorado and places they weren't planning to travel, but it was to go meet his reunion with his, his buddies. So on into, uh, on into the future, on into those years, and it was my honor, real honor, to sit with, my, with Becky's dad at times and, and have some just amazing conversations, learning about what he saw and experienced in the war. And, and so I thought often... Um, about him, that he's typical of so many. You, many of you, are sitting right near, thinking you know somebody that was like that, never talked about it, and because they weren't waving their own flag. Uh, but on Memorial Day weekend, we we want to wave that, that flag, and we want to say thank you uh, for your service to people all across the land. And and as as we do that, we're also acknowledging um, our loved ones that have that have gone to be with the Lord. Uh, that we can't think in person now like Jack Alford and thousands and thousands and thousands like him uh, that, um, that their 
sacrificial service truly, truly, not only does it matter, but it was, it's crucial to uh, the freedoms that we enjoy. And that's, I think, maybe one of the reasons why uh, the, uh, the, that, that iconic place at Arlington National Cemetery, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, whenever we've gone there, and it's one of the first places if I take guests to Washington, have enough time in the plan for the day, I try to go to, to this spot uh, as certainly if I miss anything else, I try to take them to see the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. Because every time I go there and I watch that changing of the guard, um, it, it washes over my soul, my gratitude for this great country. And um, on the inscribed on that, um, on that Tomb of the Unknowns um, is that a memorable phrase, here rest in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. And to all of us, all of us, we know for many people that not only are those unknowns known but to God, but people like I mentioned, my father-in-law and hundreds of thousands of others, that what they did is known but to God, even if they're even if they are identified in their burial place. So we take this as a moment to uh, remember that uh, we've been abundantly blessed. And as we pray together today, I'm struck by how vital it is that we pray for our country um, as bold believers activating what we read in Ephesians, that we come with boldness and confidence to God. Because one of the reasons that uh, that, that um, place is so moving there, Arlington Cemetery, is it, it's a reminder of something that time and time in the crunch, in the crisis, at a point where it looked like the odds were absolutely insurmountable for the last 250 years, time and time and time again, when, when America's back was against the wall, and maybe worse than that, looked like tyranny had its foot almost on our throats. Men and women just like you trusted God's word and began to pray. And it looked so bleak, many of them probably felt like some of us felt Tuesday night when the shock waved across of this awful tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. And, and many times in our history, People have faced that kind of bleak, overwhelming shock and grief on the morning of September 11th, 2001. All of us, how many of you remember exactly where you were when, that, when you got the first news? So there, time and time again, and people have cried out to God and they've said, Lord, we can't see the way. Jehoshaphat, the king in Chronicles 20, said it so well when he said, our eyes are upon you, God. And that's the way we pray. That's the way we pray today. That's the way God's called us to pray for those in harm's way and for those suffering grief, grief and agony. We pray, Lord, I can't see the way, but our eyes are on you, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And many across many denominations, many, many expressions of faith in God cried out to God for their country. God has answered prayer. Guess what? say it, God answers a lot of ignorant prayers too. He answers a lot of prayers. People don't know even what to pray, 
but they're just pouring their soul out before God. One way I know this is uh, Psalm 20, 62, 8 says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. Psalm 62, 8 is a living promise, an invitation to all of us to trust in him and pour out your hearts before him. Sometimes the pouring out of the heart begins with tears. That's the first prayer I prayed Tuesday night was my tears. And then I moved into my, my verbal. And when you hit that wall, remember, as we look at that, think of what has gone before. God has delivered this country. God has moved for the benefit of this nation in astonishing ways. Though, it's been, though it was 78 years ago next week, the victory, the, the, the uh, phenomenon is still as incredible, uh, more incredible than I can do justice to. And that is when, when General Dwight D. Eisenhower, commander of the Allied forces, had finally had finished the, all the prep in leading a massive, unprecedented undertaking to prepare for the invasion of the coast of France, to, to prepare for D-Day, probably one of the greatest, best-kept military secrets in military history, considering the vast numbers of people that had to be in on it for logistical reasons. And when, when Dwight D. Eisenhower sent a message to the troops, when, they, when the meteorologist let him know that finally they had been watching that weather hour by hour and hour by hour to get the right time to launch D-Day, that window of time came, and it was a window because there was bad weather just before, and it, we're expecting more bad weather. And in that window, that meteorological window, when it came to Eisenhower to make the choice, will we go now, or will we postpone and risk possibly some of our plans becoming known? And Eisenhower made that quality choice, we're going now and sent that message to the troops that let them know that we're all engaged in a great endeavor for which we do not know the but we do know that the cost is worth all the sacrifice that we're calling upon you for. And the other part that is so phenomenal is what was not known at the time by, the, by anybody other than Eisenhower's closest staff but it was the letter that Eisenhower wrote and put into his, uh, into his um, planning desk and was later discovered. And that was his letter of taking full responsibility should the mission fail. An incredible leader who saw in advance that victory would mean the liberation of people under tyranny and yet said, fails. In so many words, well, this is Truman's mind, but Eisenhower used it, the same principle. The buck stops with me. An incredible artifact of history is that, that letter of Eisen, Dwight D. Eisenhower saying, we pray and we plan and we hope with all our might for success in defeating the Nazi tyranny. But should we fail, 
should D-Day have proven to be disastrous, it's my responsibility. Boy, do we need leaders like that today. So, 78 years ago, and yet there's another clear example of God's mighty deliverance. But here's the thing today to look at, and I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah chapter 28, that one of the things that would prevent us, one of the things that would keep us from doing what we read in Ephesians about coming boldly to the throne of grace, knowing we have that access to God. What would keep us? Many things could, certainly. But one of the things in this generation, in our, ch our church, in our friends, in our community of churches, not just our church, but communities of churches here in Carroll County and around the country, one thing that would keep us and hinder us would be weariness. We get worn out. And there's many kinds of weariness. Of course, there's that, just that natural weariness of, of, of work and, and uh, trouble and details of life. But there's a deeper weariness that's hit many people, and that is the weariness of so much heartache, the weariness of so much, so much hurt, the weariness of so many senseless and inexplicable tragedies. Uh, and, and, and the weariness, too, certainly, after the horrific events of Tuesday that just slammed into my soul with force, uh, is the weariness of, of, the, of, the, of the chattering, wagging tongues, all the meaningless talk that fills the airwaves with useless opinions and constant controversies and arguments that fight back and forth. That is, oftentimes when we're confronted with heartache and shock and loss, the, the most biblical, the most powerful, the most needed thing is to humble ourselves before God. Say, Lord, our hope is in you. And I'd like you to look at, at Isaiah 40 first. I'm going to jump back to 28 for a minute. I want you to look with me in your Bible at Isaiah 40, uh, verse 1 through 11, and I'm reading today from the English Standard, the ESV, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way, Lord, make paths for him. Make a straight and desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. So go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. 
and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather, carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If you're weary, if you're worn, if you have reached some point of exhaustion, if you have reached some point of spiritual disillusionment, if you have reached some threshold where your energy has been drained, the question to consider today is where do you go to worship? Now you may say, now why, why would you ask that question? I'm here at the church to worship. <laughs> no, I'm asking where do we, including the church, where do we go to worship? And the reason I ask this question is that Isaiah chapter 4 gives us an incredible insight into the phenomenal facts of the very nature of Almighty God. Now remember, Jesus said, when clarifying for us what his mission was all about, in John 17, 3, we won't turn there, but this is a very important cross-reference to think of that of this. In John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to the Father just before going to the unspeakable and indescribable sufferings by which his atoning death would give us the gift of salvation. In other words, we could actually say, if you look back at your text here at verse 10, you could say that Jesus is praying to the Father, activating exactly what this promise says. The Lord God will come with great might. And then verse 11, will be like a shepherd who rescues the weak and the helpless and carries his lambs. Jesus in John 17, 3 is saying to God the Father, this is life eternal that they may know you, true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So in that prayer that we could call the high priestly prayer, Christ the Son is speaking to God the Father about the actual reason for his upcoming suffering. The prayer didn't spare him of his suffering. Prayer christened his suffering with the actual reason in the deepest possible way that every single person who would come to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior would have a way to go to the Father and worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words... Worshiping God isn't limited to those segments of time when a worship team and their gifts and their expressions of prepared hearts to lead us. That is a part of our worship experience, a vital part that is designed to equip us and encourage us to be actively worshiping the Father throughout our week. That is, we're to walk as worshipers. We're to thrive as worshipers. And yes, when we're weary, when we're worn, when we're exhausted, when pressure and hurt and heartache has slammed into our world, where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we run? We go to the Father. 
We go to the Father's house. We go running to Abba Father. As Romans 8.15 says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're, they're the sons and daughters of God. For we have not received the spirit of bondage to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Abba, Father, Abba. As simple as a baby's, some of a baby's first words, Abba, Abba, Abba. Father, Romans 8 puts it in that light. Isaiah 40 shows us the magnitude of what a weary and worn and exhausted people needed in order to come out of their desperation. He addresses them with that prophetic passage of verse 6 and 7 where there's a voice crying out. And a full verbal kind of artistry in the text in verse 6 and 7 is that there is embedded in this great chapter of Isaiah 40 a, a, an imaginary conversation. It's like there's a, there's a voice coming as if it's a stage. And there's a voice coming from one side of the stage and then a voice coming from the other side of the stage. It's a literary technique that calls our attention to a fact that is real for all of us today and that is this text is helping to answer the cry of the heart that says, how can I make sense of what is around me? And when the voice comes in Isaiah 40 verse 6 and says, and says, cry, or announce, or shout, or proclaim, in other words, cry, cry out, immediately this other voice answers in verse 6. And I said, now, this may be, it could be a, a literary device of Isaiah, uh, but it reflects what we saw in the sixth chapter of this book, which is uh, what we see, which was Isaiah saying, Lord, who am I? Who am I to stand before the majestic power of the holiness of God? And God's answer was to him was, was, you know, you're right, Isaiah, that you are inadequate, but here, what's about to happen is you're going to be equipped. Isaiah said, I feel like I'm undone. When I get before the magnitude of the holiness of God, he says, I feel like I'm about to disintegrate. The Hebrew word in the sixth chapter where he says, I'm undone, undone, the Hebrew word literally means to come apart at the seams, to disintegrate. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a midst of unclean lips. In other words, Paul, Isaiah, one of the most godly men of his generation, a true spiritual giant in Israel, somebody that all of Israel, he was like the Billy Graham of his, of his generation. And yet he said, when I get before God, I see, I see my sin, I see my uncleanness. See how, how fragile I am. And then here in this 40th chapter, again he says, I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
<laughs> Here's an interesting thing about Isaiah. Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanned most likely, there's some variation in estimates, but there are some dates dependent on in the reign of certain kings in Judah, and it is almost certain that Isaiah's span of service to God was at least 45 years and possibly as much as 55. And it hit me when I was reading this suddenly that I'm at 41 years in my ministry and I thought, God, like Isaiah, we can all look back and see what have I learned in my journey. And the beautiful thing about it is Isaiah is bringing an honest expression to God and saying, oh God, the people around me are just vulnerable. They're fragile. We're weak. We're not champions. We're, we're subject to the elements, so to speak, like the grass. But now look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, one of the beautiful things that we can get a hold of here is that God speaks to you in your wilderness. See, wilderness is described in Deuteronomy 32.10 as with an interesting phrase, and it is a howling wilderness. That is a, an overwhelmingly pervasive environment where human strength evaporates quickly. <laughs> Becky and I noted the hottest we've ever been, <laughs> the absolute hottest we've ever noticed. I guess we could have been at some other time. She travels to Spain two times, so maybe it was in Spain. But together, Becky and I were in Henderson, Nevada. We were, we were stopping at that Hoover Dam, and when we got out, we checked the temperature. It was 114 degrees in Henderson, Nevada that day. And I remember thinking, I think that's the hottest I've ever been. And then I got to thinking about uh, those who carry military equipment in the, in the deserts of, of, <laughs> of the Middle East. And I thought, wow, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? But you know, wherever you are, desert speaks of the, uh, is an overwhelming environment that would evaporate human strength. So you find yourself literally in a desert climate losing your strength. Isn't that spiritually exactly what's happening to many people now? Is that in the howling wilderness, there's a wind that whips across the open spaces of your soul. Now, I asked you to find chapter 28. I want you to go back to the 28th chapter of Isaiah and just toggle back there because in this passage, what we're seeing is God, through the prophet Isaiah, is addressing deepest needs that come to the surface in the lives of Christians. We're applying it to the lives of Christians now, though it was written 720 years before the birth of Jesus, because these prophetic truths, we see are, are the fleshing out of a dilemma that many people face. And when God answers Isaiah about his majestic power and his eternal glory, Isaiah is given eyes to see that you and I now 
what you and I partake of is a way that we can turn to God in worship that is not only out of honor to God, but it is refreshing and revitalizing. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 5 and 6, there is a wonderful promise of the Lord Jesus that is fulfilled in his ministry in the future, but in the text of Isaiah brings us to a place where we see the practical benefit of God's making known who he is. What did Jesus say? This is life eternal to know you. The goal of these passages today as we go out into this beautiful weekend is to remember there's no greater goal in your life or mine than to know God. And that coming to know God has been made possible through the redemptive grace God in Christ Jesus. And we of all people receiving such a gift should be aware that in our weary, worn moments, running to him in worship should be our first objective. So in Isaiah 28, 5, he says, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. Isaiah 28, 5 describes here a diadem of beauty, that, that resplendent uh, crown of bejeweled crown that would be placed upon the head of a monarch in the days that Isaiah was writing. A diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. And strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. The imagery, and I tried to find a picture that portrays this, is a garland, a wreath. It's the kind of wreath, not a crown that a king wears in this case, but the wreath of a of a triumphant warrior. And that kind of wreath would be placed upon the head of the triumphant leader of a military expedition in order for the nation to honor and celebrate a great triumph. Now the prophetic word here, Isaiah 28, 6, applies it to the coming of the glorious one. We know who the glorious one is. The coming Messiah. And I like to apply it this way. When you are weary, friends, when you are discouraged, when you are experiencing some exhaustion in your life, when there are factors that have impinged, impinged on your life that may be different than someone else, and you might even be tempted to say, nobody could understand what I'm going through. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands today because probably people wouldn't want to do it. But, but if I did, I'll bet a lot of you could say, there have been times that I thought nobody could understand what I'm experiencing. It's exactly for that reason, human heart, God has made it possible that we can hear this voice crying in the wilderness. This voice, this voice crying in the wilderness in Isaiah 40. The scene has shifted now to the to the events that are happening and will happen in the future in nations that Isaiah addresses up through chapter 39. But then three things are highlighted in this 40th chapter as we go back there. One, a reality dawns. God says, comfort ye my people, comfort, comfort my people, saith your God, for their iniquity is pardoned and their 
era of hard service is over. This is the telescopic part of prophecy, where God gives us this coming one, the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah. And in his accomplished mission, there is a release from the guilt that weighs us down. That is, this reality corresponds to a forgiveness that roots out all guilt. To say it as absolutely as I just did would feel audacious if it weren't for what the angel said to Joseph when he was told his beloved betrothed Mary was with child and that he was to take her and that this little one would be named Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Just as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. I, I, I couldn't be this audacious if, if Acts chapter 13 verse 46 was not where the apostle Paul said to the believers at a, at a place in modern, what is modern day Turkey that was literally full of idol worship and full of immoral practices, and full of astrology and witchcraft. And the good news of the gospel pierced that darkness with the message that you can now through Christ be forgiven of all those things you could never have been forgiven of in any form of religion you may try. There is a living one, a triumphant one, the crucified risen Savior, by which his shed blood brings a complete forgiveness. In Isaiah 40, God is saying, comfort my people. For the God who forgives is the God who delivers. Not only does the reality dawn, but there is an arrival. There's assurance that God's glory is going to overcome all evil. Friends, you and I carry treasure. This sin-cursed world where sin abounds, grace will much more abound, is a timeless truth we can carry with us into the harshest tragedies of life. And that is to say, Yes, we live in a fallen world where evil individuals can take weapons and they can destroy people's lives. And humans argue about how to protect, how to some of those arguments are valid. Some of those arguments are valid, but what is not valid is to is to be deceived and think that humans can ever solve the problem of sin. No, there is a there is a there is a redemptive cure for the poisons of the heart, and there's only one. It is the redeeming blood of our Savior Jesus. And God's, God's promise is that a rescue is coming. A rescue is arriving. And God's glory is going to be revealed. And along with this cleansing of guilt from the hearts of the repentant, God's glory will conquer evil. And you can be sure of it. Before we close today, look at, back at Isaiah 40, verse 7, and please just take it to heart as a kind of a carry-out. Take it like a carry-out from a, from, from a restaurant and, and put it in your soul and, and read it to yourself and, and remind yourself that in Isaiah 40, verse 10, 
The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And then finally, the last part of that is that next verse, that 11th, living shepherd. Friends, everything I've said to you is only possible to be experienced because your shepherd is alive and he's walking with you. Everything I've said would be null and void weren't for the living presence of the good shepherd who said the hireling will flee when he sees the wolf come, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep that I may take it up again. And that in his shepherding care, it is the shepherding care of Christ to which the word of God points us in our moments of greatest perplexity. Across the hills of Scotland in a beautiful, in a beautiful windswept part of the, the high cliffs of Scotland, back in about 1870, a traveler had come into that part of the mountain fairly inexperienced and had gotten in touch with some of the local shepherds. And one of them said, I'll take you into the mountain. And he said, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll go into the mountain myself. We, we're, we prepared for this trip. And the shepherds were dubious, but they nodded and let them go on. They made their way all the way up into those craggy rocks. They found themselves overwhelmed at some point by overpowering fog. And they were running low on supplies. And they began to wonder what they were going to do. Out of nowhere, out of the mist, came this seasoned old shepherd. And he had tracked them and had met them there. He knew better than they did what their journey would result in. And they, he said, I'll take you back down the mountain. They said, thank you so much. What that experienced shepherd did is only a tiny microcosm of what Jesus does for you. You, you, take, you take to your heart your self-confidence. I, I can do this. I can handle this. <laughs> you get yourself in unexpected quandaries you didn't know you were going to find. Worst of all, the fog comes in. In fact, they asked him, why couldn't, you know, what, what's the key to this mountain climbing? And he said, you got to understand, you got to be ready for the fog. All of us find ourselves in the fog. And Jesus, the living shepherd, far more omniscient, far more in tune than any human shepherd says, I know where you are. I've tracked you there. I'm there for you. Everyone who prays today can be leagued with that living shepherd. Jesus knows the quandary of this troubled country. But back to the individual, Jesus knows the quandary of your heart. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. And as we do, I'm, I'm just envisioning that there could be listening that you're in kind of a place where you know that weariness has somewhat sapped. doesn't mean that you're not loving the Lord. It doesn't mean you're backslidden, but the weariness that has affected your expectation in your walk with God. And God in Isaiah 40 is saying, is saying, what I the reason I'm the reason you can come running to your heavenly father is because the shepherd is here. The shepherd is alive. The crucified, risen, exalted shepherd. And he comes personally. Come. His arm will rule with for him, he said. And he will 
feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he'll, he'll gently lead the ewes that are with young. Father, today I pray for anyone facing experience of weariness. And I pray for our country today that there will be an awakening across our country of, of what it means to come running to the one who has the keys for real restoration. Lord, in every heart together today, I pray an awakening to the magnitude of the Father's glorious, accessible, powerful, healing presence. We love you, Lord. Amen.